0: CHAPTER TEN OF A CABINET SECRET BY GUY BOOTHBY. THIS LibriVox RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. READING BY Matt CHAPTER TEN For some minutes, after the commander-in-chief had finished speaking, I stood staring down at the white whirl of water below me, wrapped in what I might term, for want of a better simile, an overwhelming bewilderment of terror there could be no doubt that the construction he had placed upon what he had heard was a correct one. Yet it seemed beyond belief, as I reviewed it in my mind, that there could exist men in the world so base, so callous, as to even contemplate putting such a scheme into execution. And yet, what other construction could we place upon it? Are you quite sure that, "'that you have told it to me exactly as you heard it?' I said, trying to speak calmly. "'As you are aware, the mere substitution of one word for another, or the change of a sentence, might make all the difference.' "'Oh, no,' he said. "'I am absolutely certain that I have repeated the conversation word for word as I heard it. In fact, I should be prepared to stake my life upon it. Very well. Now let us look at the matter from every point of view. You say that Reifenberg asserted that a certain something, when fully wound up, would run for an hour? Is that not so? The commander-in-chief nodded. In that case, I continued, we may believe ourselves to be right if we describe that something as a clockwork machine. We may also be sure that if the explosion, to which he referred, is to take place, it will be when the machine has run for the allotted time. In other words, it is an anarchist bomb of superior construction and capable of being set like an alarm clock to go off at a given time. The mere fact that it is to be placed in the stoke hole shows that it is to be used on board a steamer and it is scarcely likely to be on any other than this boat. Putting all these things together, we arrive at this conclusion. The day after tomorrow, another vessel is due to join us. Our captors and the crew of this boat will leave her and go aboard the newcomer, having previously set the machine going, and and we shall be left locked in our cabins to drown like rats, "'In a trap,' said my companion, in an awed whisper. "'That, I take it, is the idea,' I answered slowly. "'My God, Manderville, how can you speak so quietly? Don't you realize what an awful position we are placed in?' "'I realize it perfectly,' I answered. "'I am trying to think what we can do to save ourselves.' The situation was so terrible that for a few moments I stood looking across the waste of water, seeing nothing but a man locked in his cabin, knowing that the ship was sinking and battling vainly for life. The day after tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, the words rang in my brain like the tolling of a funeral knell. Surely there must be a way out of it, if we can only find it, I said some manner in which we can thwart these murderous ruffians let us put our wits to work with all speed and see whether or not we can find a loophole of escape i have been doing that all the afternoon the commander-in-chief replied but so far without any success if we are locked in our cabins i don't see how it will be possible for us to do anything a mouse confined in a trap when a servant girl plunges it into a bucket of water, is not more helpless than we shall be. Come, come, old friend, I said, you must not give way like that. I don't think any man can accuse me of cowardice, he replied, but I must confess that when I think of what may happen the day after tomorrow, my courage fails me. But it's not going to happen, I answered. Make up your mind to that. As I said just now there must be a way out of it and we've got to find it in the meantime we must endeavour if possible to let the others know the position of affairs though how that's to be managed i must confess i don't quite see it is not possible to approach their cabins and according to the new arrangement we are not allowed to come into personal contact with them could it not be managed by means of the portholes my companion inquired your cabin, and that occupied by Castellan, adjoin, I believe. That is so, I replied, but I could not reach a quarter of the distance that separates his porthole from mine, and I have nothing in my cabin to assist me. But we must think it over, and see what can be done. Now we had better begin to pace the deck again, or they may grow suspicious. With that, we set out, and, for upwards of an hour religiously patrolled the poop at the end of that time we were ordered below and when my cabin door was locked upon me i sat myself down on my locker and put my brains to work the first point to be decided as i have said above was how we were to communicate with the others the second and all important was to find a means of escape from the doom that had been prepared for us At last, my head in a whirl, I turned into bed and endeavoured to divert my mind from the burden it carried. The attempt was useless, however, as may be easily understood. Think of what I would. My thoughts invariably came back to the same subject. I recalled that night in Paris, when the eyes of the woman we had known as the Countess de Veneza had exercised such a strange effect upon me, I remembered the nameless horror they had inspired in me, and the sleepless nights I had had in consequence. I also recalled our first meeting and our crossing to London together. Who would have dreamt, then, that that meeting would have ended in this terrible fashion? Hour by hour the night wore on until the faint weird light of dawn crept into the sky. We might now say that to-morrow we should know our fate. Then, tired of tumbling and tossing in my bunk, I left it, and stood at the open porthole, watching the great grey waves go by. There was a fair sea running, and, in consequence, the steamer was rolling heavily. If only I could find some means of communicating with Castellan. I said to myself, for the hundredth time, he and Waller might put their wits to work, and possibly hit upon a scheme that would save us. Then, in a flash, as is generally the way, an idea occurred to me. If I were permitted a chance of carrying it out, it was quite within the bounds of possibility that it might succeed.' taking my letter-case from my pocket i selected a clean half-sheet of note-paper and wrote upon it a letter to the colonial secretary in it i told him what the commander-in-chief had discovered and what our suspicions were i begged him to tell waller and between them to try and think out a scheme for our deliverance when i had finished i made the note into a cocked hat and slipped it into my pocket I might here remark that the doors of the various cabins opened directly into the saloon, and that at the foot of each door there was the space of nearly an inch. My object, therefore, was to get the note under the door without our jailers observing what I was doing. At first glance this would appear a difficult matter to accomplish, but I had every confidence in my plan and was determined to make the attempt. As good fortune had it, Castellan's cabin was almost directly behind my seat in the saloon, and this was a point in my favor. Having settled upon an idea for delivering this note, I was in a fever to put it into execution. It seemed as if the breakfast hour would never arrive, but at last the door was unlocked, and I was informed that the meal was upon the table. Now or never must my scheme be carried out. As I have said, The ship was rolling heavily, and for this reason I clutched at the rail running along the side of the saloon, while, with my left, I made a feint of reaching the back of the seat at the table. Then, abandoning the rail, I staggered forward, just as the ship was finishing her downward roll. The natural consequence was that I lost my footing as she came up again, and found myself lying in a heap upon the floor of the saloon just before Castellan's cabin while in this position it was quite easy to push the note underneath the door without attracting attention this accomplished i staggered to my feet and to my position at the table flattering myself that the whole thing had been so natural that the suspicions of our captors could not possibly have been aroused our meal at an end i followed the commander-in-chief to the deck above well i said "'when we reached the taffrail. "'Have you anything to tell me?' "'Nothing,' he answered lugubriously. "'I lay awake all night puzzling my brains, "'but without success. "'If only we could communicate with Castellan, "'I feel sure he would be able to work out some scheme.' "'It is already done,' I replied. "'I managed to get a note to him this morning.' "'You did?' he said.' with a look of incredulity upon his face, then how on earth did you manage it? By giving myself a bump which I shall remember for some hours to come, I replied. You observe the fall I had in the saloon when trying to reach the breakfast table? Yes, I noticed it, he answered, but what had that to do with it? Everything in the world, I said. Perhaps it did not strike you that my fall took place outside Castellan's cabin door. That was when I got the note to him. If you did not see it, it is more than probable that the others did not. In that case, we need have no fears in that direction. "'There is the making of a strategist in you,' he said, with the first smile upon his face I had seen there since he told me his dreadful news. "'Many thanks.' now the next thing to consider is how is castellan to reply he'll find a way my companion replied never fear castellan is a resourceful man and all i hope is that he'll find a way of getting us out of this hole if we could only manage to get out of our cabins there might be some chance for us, but so far as I can see there is not the slightest possibility of being able to do that. What is more to the point, did you observe that they are making assurance doubly sure by putting a padlock on each cabin door? No, I did not notice it, I replied. How do you know it? Because the carpenter was at work on my door before breakfast, he answered if this were so our case was indeed hopeless for while we might be able to force the lock it would be impossible to break through both lock and staple when we returned to the saloon i found that what my companion had said was only too true the man had placed the necessary fittings on each of my friend's cabin doors and it was just commencing on mine he stood aside to let me pass and as he did so I noticed that behind the flap of his tool-basket, and less than a couple of inches from the door, lay a small gimlet, which doubtless he had been using for the work he had been engaged upon. As I saw it, a longing to possess it, such as I never had for anything in my life, came over me. If only I could get it into the cabin unobserved, it would be worth more to me than a hundred times its weight in gold." Was it possible, however, to secure it? I had only a second in which to hit upon a scheme, but that was sufficient. Putting my hand to my waistcoat, I gave a tug at the cord which carried my eyeglass. It snapped, and the glass rolled away across the floor, towards the spot where the man was standing. He stooped to pick it up, but before he had time to stand upright again, I had given the gimlet a push with my foot, and it was inside the cabin when the man returned the glass to me i gave him a coin for his trouble thanked him and then walked into my cabin and shut the door once that was closed behind me i picked up my treasure and thrust it under the mattress of my bunk the question the next few minutes would have to decide was whether the loss would be discovered and if so whether the man would accuse me of taking it so invaluable would it be to me that i felt as though i would have fought the world for its possession i could plainly hear him driving in the last screws and afterwards placing the tools he had been using in his basket with the others a moment later the padlock was placed on the door and locked and then my hearing told me that he was leaving the saloon when all was safe i took the gimlet from its hiding place once more and regarded it with an interest that i can assure you no article of that description had ever inspired in me before now if only it were not discovered that i had it in my possession i felt that i should be able to make my escape from the cabin when the proper time arrived when we went on deck after luncheon i informed the commander-in-chief of my good fortune and of the use i intended putting it to his delight was as sincere as my own and we were about to discuss the possibilities it opened up for us when i felt compelled to take off the yachting cap reifenberg had lent me on the morning after my arrival on board hitherto it had been tolerably comfortable now it did not fit at all a nasty lump was pressing upon my forehead and in order to discover what occasioned it i lifted the strip of leather inside to find a piece of paper there that had certainly not been in the cap when i had last worn it one second's consideration was sufficient to convince me that this was castellan's method of conveying a message to me he must have worn my cap when on deck and have placed the strip of paper in a place where he knew i should be well nigh certain to find it leaning on the taffrail with our backs turned to the sentry i opened it and eagerly scanned the contents it ran as follows dear mandeville your letter astounded me the plot you speak of only serves to show what a set of fiends we have fallen in with since receiving it i have been puzzling my brains for a solution of the difficulty but so far have discovered no plan that could have the remotest prospect of success as you will by this time have noticed our enemies have taken double precautions to ensure our remaining prisoners unless we can manage to force our way out at the last moment i fear that our fate is sealed should any idea occur to either of us i will communicate with you again by the same means that i have employed on this occasion god bless you both and may he help us in our trouble your friend b c when we had read it I- tore it into small pieces and threw the fragments overboard half an hour later when we went below I wrote him a brief note in which I told him to be of good cheer for I thought I had hit upon a scheme which might very possibly prove successful this when next we were on deck together I placed in the hat and on the following morning had the satisfaction of finding it gone try if you can to imagine with what feelings we greeted the dawn of the day that was to mean so much for us who knew what the end of it would be the mere idea was quite bad enough but the uncertainty as to when the event we dreaded would take place was much worse it might not be until towards evening or it might be at any moment i was well aware that to carry out the plan i had proposed to myself namely the boring holes with the gimlet round the lock and the hasp and staple that secured the padlock would take a long time and if left until the last moment would be useless on the other hand for all our sakes i dared not begin the work while there was even the remotest chance of our enemies discovering it i was not afraid of their looking behind the door for the simple reason that when i was out of the cabin it was invariably hitched back by means of a brass catch to the end of the bunk and there would be no reason for them to examine it yet if the point of the gimlet should chance to penetrate the smooth surface round the lock on the other side detection would be certain and the plot would fail by reason of it therefore when we returned from our morning spell on deck i embraced a momentary opportunity that presented itself and measured the exact thickness of the door. Then, when the latter was closed upon me, and I was alone, I was able to mark the gimlet to correspond. Having allowed a sufficient margin to ensure the point not going quite through the door, I mapped out my plan of operations, and set to work. The gimlet was not a large one, nor was its point particularly sharp. The labor was therefore prodigious. The tiny box handle cut and blistered my hand my face streamed with perspiration but still i worked on and on remembering always that not only my own life but the lives of my companions depended upon my exertions by midday more than three parts of the work was accomplished as a memento of the occasion large blisters covered the palm of my hand while every muscle of my arm ached as if I had been placed upon the rack. That no suspicions should be aroused, I removed every particle of sawdust from the floor, and dropped it out of the porthole, to be carried away by the breeze. By the time I was summoned to the luncheon, only some twenty holes remained, and these I resolved to complete as soon as we returned from our airing on deck during the progress of the meal it was easily to be seen that something unusual was going on our guards were unmistakably excited and i will do the older man sargasta the credit of saying that he appeared sufficiently alive to his own villainy to have no desire for conversation with either the commander-in-chief or myself conrad on the other hand was even more flippant than usual I noticed also that both men watched the deck uneasily, as though they were momentarily expecting news from that quarter. If this were so, they were destined to be disappointed, for the meal ended as uneventfully as it had begun. According to custom, we had left our chairs and were proceeding to the door at the further end of the saloon, in order to take our usual promenade, when a hail reached us from the deck above. Conrad's face, he was standing in front of us, at the time, turned as pale as the cloth upon the table, and when he ordered us back to our cabins a second or so later, it was in a voice so unlike his own that I scarcely recognized it. As for myself, a sudden and peculiar feeling of composure had come over me. I felt sure the vessel they were expecting was in sight, and that, in a short time, they would be on their way to board her leaving us to meet with what fortitude we might the miserable death they had arranged for us to have let them have the least suspicion that we were aware of what they were about to do would have been madness on our part for in that case they would either have killed us outright or have taken the precaution of making our cabin so secure that. We could not possibly escape from them in time. Once in my cabin, I went to the porthole and looked out. As I expected, I had interpreted the hail from deck all right, for, coming swiftly towards us, was a handsome vessel of the yacht type. Already, as I could tell from the revolutions of the screw, we had slackened our pace and were doing but little more than crawl through the water. If we were to save ourselves we had not a moment to lose going to the bunk and procuring my gimlet i set about the completion of my task with feverish energy the blisters in the palm of my hand burnt like fire my arm still ached from its morning exertion but i kept steadily on remembering that every turn of the little point was bringing us one revolution nearer safety only pausing now and again to look out of the porthole in order to note the vessel's progress I continued the work, until only some half-dozen holes were required to finish the task. In the saloon, outside, perfect silence reigned, and I could guess why. They were either preparing the machine, or making ready to leave the ship. It seemed to me that I could hear the ticking of the clockwork of the bomb. What if it were already in the stoke-hole, and had been running for half an hour? Another half an hour might elapse before i should be able to open the door this thought sent the sweat of pure terror rolling down my face and caused me to work with feverish haste at last i could see the newcomer without moving from the door she was still little more than a mile away and was signalling our vessel overhead the tramp of feet was to be heard followed by the whine of a rope running through a sheave. a moment later a boat was lowered and lay for a moment in full view of my porthole before she disappeared by this time i had thrown caution to the winds and was boring my holes right through the door and out on the other side i had just finished the last but one and was about to withdraw the gimlet when without warning the frail shaft broke off near the handle and the little instrument which at a moment before had been our connecting link with life lay at my feet as useless as a straw i gazed at it for a moment and then threw the handle from me with a gesture of despair if i had not already done enough to make the door yield my work would be of no avail suddenly a voice from the deck above called through the skylight in the saloon conrad well cried the voice of reifenberg in answer from his cabin on the port side what is it what are you about that you do not come don't you know that the time is half gone on hearing this i sank back upon the locker almost beside myself with terror my suspicions were correct after all the machine had already been running for half an hour a few seconds later a light step sounded in the saloon and went clattering up the ladder i waited a few moments and then with agonizing curiosity got on to my feet and looked out the porthole once more i was just in time to see three boats leave the side and push off in the direction of the stranger reifenberg sargasta and the man who had waited upon us were in that nearest me the rest were filled with the officers and crew as they drew further away they looked back at our doomed vessel while reifenberg upon whose face i can quite imagine that devilish smile to be playing took off his hat and waved it to us as if in ironical farewell. Then I sprang off the locker, and, seizing the handle of the door, pulled with all my strength. To my horror, it stood the test. I tried again, with the same result, and then fell back against the wash-hand stand, hopeless for the moment, to the very center of my being. All the time, a little voice within me was telling me that in the stoke-hole, The wheels were going round remorselessly, ticking off the seconds that separated us from death. Not more than a couple of minutes could have elapsed, since the men had deserted the ship, but to me they seemed like hours. Then, gathering all my strength together for one great effort, I once more gave the door a terrific pull. This time I was more successful, for the wood cracked. Another crash followed the door gave way under the strain and i found myself stretched on my back upon the floor i was free regaining my feet i did not hesitate i had arranged the whole plan in my mind beforehand and did not waste a second considering what should be done shouting to my companions that i would free them in a few minutes i rushed along the saloon down the little alleyway past the steward's cabin and so on to the main deck before a man could have counted twenty, I was standing among the polished wheels and rods of the engine-room. Heaven send, they remain true, of their decision to place it in the stoke-hole, I said to myself, as I descended the narrow ladder that to the furnace-room below. It is strange how, in moments of such awful mental anguish, the mind will revert from the matter in hand to some apparently trivial subject on this occasion i remembered how many years ago the chairman of a great steamship company had been kind enough to take me over one of their new vessels and had shown me the engine-room and the stoke-hole below how little i had thought then that my next visit to a similar place would be in search of an infernal machine that was intended to take my life rung by rung i descended the ladder and at last found myself in the stoke-hole The furnaces were still alight, the men not have taken the trouble to draw the fires. Their rakes and shovels lay just as where they had thrown them down, but not a trace of the object I was searching for, could I discover. Like a madman, I ran hither and thither, hunting high and low. Indeed, it was not until I was almost giving up the search in despair, and was going off to look elsewhere, that my diligence was rewarded then in a corner i made out a black object in shape not unlike a large bandbox. that it was the bomb there could be no doubt for when i placed my ear to its side i could distinctly hear the ticking of the clockwork within clutching it in my arms regardless of what would happen should the allotted time expire while i was carrying it i climbed the ladder passed through the engine room and into the alley beyond A mist was clouding my eyes, my breath came in heavy gasps, but I heeded nothing save the necessity for getting that devilish contrivance overboard and out of harm's way. Reaching the bulwarks on the starboard side, that is to say, on the side opposite to that on which the strange vessel was lying, I raised it high above my head and threw it from me. It struck the water with a splash. A few bubbles followed it and then it was gone so far as that was concerned we were saved having thrown the machine overboard i made my way to the saloon as quickly as possible much still remained to be done i could imagine with what impatience my companions were awaiting my return being in ignorance of what was going on their anxiety must have been greater than mine hastening to the captain's cabin on the port side which during our term on board had been occupied by Sagasta. I flung open the door and hurried in to find a scene of the wildest confusion. Clothes, papers, and books were strewn about the floor in hopeless disorder, but the articles which I had come in search of, the keys of my friend's cabin doors, also those of the padlocks, lay in a bunch before me upon the table. I picked them up and hastened into the saloon once more, In but little longer time than it takes to tell, the doors were opened, and they were at liberty. "'And the machine?' cried Castellan, while the others looked the question. "'Overboard,' I answered. "'I hastened to get it out of the way before coming to relieve you.' "'God bless you, Manderville,' said Waller, taking my hand. "'You have saved our lives.' "'There can be no doubt of that.' put in the commander-in-chief, and now what is to be done? "'We must get away from the boat over there,' I answered. "'Castellan, you have always had a liking for mechanics and engineering. Do you think you could undertake the engines?' "'I think I could manage them at a pinch,' he replied. "'At any rate, I am quite willing to try.' "'And you?' "'I must go to the wheel,' I answered.' whatever happens we must give that vessel yonder a run for her money now let us be off but be sure to keep out of sight as you cross the deck they'll be waiting and watching for the explosion in that case heaven be thanked they are doomed to disappointment said waller now castellan i said if you can do us the favour of setting this crazy old tub going again we shall be grateful then turning to waller and the commander-in-chief i added I am sure, gentlemen, you will, for once in your lives, condescend to officiate as stokers. Both were quick to express their willingness to do all that lay in their power to help. And then we left the saloon, and, keeping under cover of the bulwarks, made our way along the main deck to the midships of the vessel. In the alleyway, at the entrance to the engine-room, we paused for a moment, and Castellan held out his hand, which I took without a word the others followed suit and then i sped on towards the ladder leading to the bridge reaching the wheelhouse in front of the chart-room for i had no intention of going upon the bridge itself i shouted down the tube to the engine-room to know how soon it would be possible for them to put her ahead i am starting her now was the reply i am afraid however that it will be some time before i can get much out of her true to his word a moment later The vessel began to draw slowly ahead, but her speed was so slow as to be scarcely perceptible. As I stood at the wheel, I wondered what they were doing on board the other vessel. Fully half an hour had elapsed since they had left the ship, and yet there had been no explosion. I could distinguish the boats lying alongside her, and could well imagine how puzzled their occupants must feel. Then a thought came into my mind, which almost brought my heart into my mouth what if they should suppose that something had gone wrong with the mechanism of the bomb and should return to the vessel to make sure of our destruction by scuttling her themselves under the impulse of this new fear i applied my mouth to the speaking-tube again for heaven's sake get all the speed you can on her i cried i am afraid of their coming back we are doing our best was the reply the pressure is rising steadily I prayed that it might rise in time to save us, and turned my attention to the wheel once more. Then a sudden and very natural curiosity came over me, to discover, if possible, our whereabouts on the seas. When I had first come on board, they had talked about the North Sea, but I had now quite convinced myself that this was not the case. At the slow pace at which she was travelling, the vessel required little or no watching. So... Leaving her to her own devices, I went out of the wheel-room by the starboard door, in order that I should not be observed by the people on board the other vessel, and so entered the old-fashioned chart-room. I quite expected to find the chart there, with a run marked out upon it, and I was not disappointed. The navigator, whoever he was, must have been both a careful and conscientious man, for I found that he had pricked off his run up to midday i found it very easy therefore to settle our position it proved to be as i expected we were not in the north sea at all and so far as that chart was concerned had never been there our true position was three degrees or thereabouts west of Achille head on the west coast of ireland i had just convinced myself on this point when i chanced to look out of the window on the port side almost before i had time to think I was back in the wheel-room once more. "'The boats are returning!' I shouted down the tube, in a voice that might have been heard a couple of hundred yards away, and then added, illogically, "'Can you do nothing?' I looked again, and, sure enough, two of the boats were heading directly for us. It was plain that they had noticed something suspicious, either from the smoke escaping from the funnel, or the splashing of the screw astern, otherwise they would not have deemed it necessary to send a second boat. They must have guessed that we had escaped from our cabins, and that we had taken charge of the ship. For a moment, a feeling of exultation seized me as I thought of the disappointment and rage which must be filling their hearts. The feeling, however, was short-lived. Let them once get aboard, I reflected, and I did not see how we were to prevent them. And the end, so far as we were concerned, would be the same as though the bomb I had thrown overboard had been allowed to do its deadly work. I looked out again, to discover that the leading boat was now less than a quarter of a mile away. So close, indeed, was she that I could plainly see the men in her, the dark man who had officiated as steward in the bows, and Sargasta and Conrad in the stern every stroke of the oars was bringing her nearer and already the man in the bows was getting his boat-hook ready to hitch on to the accommodation ladder in another two or three minutes at most they would have been aboard then in a voice which at any other time i should not have recognized for my own i shouted down the tube, for heaven's sake give her steam they are close alongside Then came back the answer I shall not forget as long as I live. It's all right now. I can let her go. I had scarcely withdrawn my ear from the tube before I felt a throb run through the vessel, and she was going ahead at a speed that could scarcely have been less than eight knots an hour. Throwing prudence to the winds, I ran out to the deck and looked at the boats, now lying motionless upon the water some considerable distance astern one of the occupants of the first boat was standing up watching us through a pair of glasses then realizing that it was hopeless for them to think of catching us the boat's head was turned and they pulled back at a fast pace towards the yacht that it would be necessary for the latter to remain in order to pick them up was quite certain and in this lay our chance of obtaining a good start Through the medium of the speaking tube, I shouted words of encouragement to the engine room below. It needed only a glance over the side to be assured that our speed was materially increasing. If only we could manage to keep it up until nightfall. It was just possible we might manage to escape after all. At one time or another, I have sailed many an exciting race, but never one for such a big stake as that we were now contesting. It was nearly five o'clock by this time, and the afternoon was rapidly drawing in. In half an hour it would be dark. Then, if we were not overhauled and captured before, our opportunity would come. Kind, however, as providence had so far been, even greater good fortune was still in store for us. I remember that I had just called down to the engine room to know if one of them could come up to me for a consultation. The commander-in-chief was selected, and it was not long before he made his appearance before me, collarless, with his shirt-sleeves rolled up, and begrimed from head to foot with cold dust. "'Where is she?' he asked, as soon as he reached me. In answer, I led him to the door of the wheel-room, and pointed astern. "'She has got the boats aboard, and will be after us in a few minutes,' I said. "'Let us hope that we shall be able to show them a good pair of heels.' can she do any more than her present running not very much my companion replied we are all inexperienced down below you know if you could see castellan's face as i saw it just now you would see the very picture of anxiety he says he doesn't know at what moment he may turn a wrong handle and blow us to pieces i trust he will not do so just yet i answered tell him we are all agreed that he is doing splendidly and now let us see how our friend the enemy is get why what's this what's become of the yacht i can't see her we stood at the wheelhouse door but we could see no sign of the yacht providence had sent to our assistance one of those extraordinary fogs which spring up so quickly on the west coast of ireland and this was the stroke of good fortune to which I have already referred. A moment before the sea had been as open as a mill-pond. Now it was covered with an impenetrable blanket of mist. "'If we don't run into anything, or anything doesn't run into us, I fancy we shall be able to give her the slip after all,' I said. "'Now, the matter to be settled is the course we are to pursue. Shall we continue as we are going?' that is to say, parallel with the coast, or shall we bring her head due west and make for the open sea? There can be no doubt that under the present circumstances the open sea is the right place for us, my companion replied. The western coastline of Ireland is proverbially treacherous, and if this fog continues we ought to have plenty of sea-room about us. I agree with you, and the others, what do they say? "'They are willing to fall in with anything we may decide,' he answered. "'In that case, let us steer for the open sea,' I said, and put the wheel over as I did so. "'The vessel's head turned slowly round, and when I had got her into the position I wanted, "'I resigned the wheel to my companion, telling him to keep her as she was going, "'while I went into the next cabin to look at the chart. On examining it, I was relieved to find that according to the course we were now steering and the speed at which we were travelling it would be all straightforward sailing for some hours to come by this time the vessel was encompassed in a white shroud so that it was impossible to see more than a few yards ahead as an example i might remark that from the wheelhouse even the foremast was invisible not a sound was to be heard save the throbbing of the engines and the dripping of the moisture upon the deck nevertheless regardless of consequences we steamed steadily on trusting to the good fortune which had followed us so far to keep any vessel out of our way when i returned to the wheel-room the commander-in-chief left for below promising on his arrival there to send waller to the cuddy in search of food the necessity for husbanding our strength in view of the work we had before us, was apparent to all. That the general was successful in his search was proved by the fact that when he joined me a quarter of an hour later, he brought with him a bottle of claret, some excellent ham, and enough bread and cheese to have satisfied two men with appetites bigger than my own. After he had left me, I lighted the lamps in the binnacle, and then fell to work upon the food. So far as that night is concerned, there is little else to chronicle. Hour after hour, that is to say, until ten o'clock, we continued our due westerly coast, and then left the fog behind us, as suddenly as it had overtaken us. Overhead, the stars shone brilliantly, while the sea, save for the long Atlantic swell, was as smooth as glass. THOUGH I SEARCHED THE WASTE OF WATER AS FAR AS MY EYE COULD REACH, NOT A SIGN OF A VESSEL COULD BE DISCOVERED. HAVING SATISFIED MYSELF UPON THIS POINT, I MADE THE WHEEL SECURE, AND SET OFF IN SEARCH OF THE SHIP'S LIGHTS. THESE I DISCOVERED IN THE FORECASTLE, AND WHEN I HAD PLACED THEM IN POSITION, I LIGHTED THEM, AND THEN RETURNED TO THE WHEEL ROOM. I HAD NOT BEEN THERE MANY MINUTES BEFORE THE SOUND OF A FOOTSTEP ON THE DECK OUTSIDE ATTRACTED MY ATTENTION and a minute later Castellan stood before me. No one would have recognized in the figure he presented the trim, well-dressed colonial secretary of a few months before. "'All well so far, Manderville,' he said cheerily, "'but I can tell you it's terribly anxious work below. "'I've just run up to obtain a breath of fresh air "'and to see what you are doing. "'I am afraid you must be very tired.' "'Not more tired than you are, I expect.' I answered. I intend bringing her head round to southwest in a few minutes. That should put us in the track of ships by daylight. Our luck will have deserted us, indeed, if we cannot find one and get them to take us aboard. Do you think you can manage to hold out below until then? We must, he replied. There is nothing else for it. This has been a terrible day, Manderville. We ought to be thankful that we have come so well out of it hear hear to that i answered and now i must be getting back to the engine-room he said call through the tube if you want anything won't you i promised to do so and then with another good wish he bade me farewell and disappeared when he had gone i brought the vessel's head round to the course indicated and then settled myself down to a long night's vigil how wearying it was i must leave my readers to imagine the night was bitterly cold but I was so wrapped up in what I was doing that I paid small heed to that. At regular intervals I left the wheel room and went to the bridge above, to make sure that no vessel was in sight. Then I would return to my post and remain there for another quarter of an hour. It was wearying work, and more than once I was so nearly overpowered by sleep that it became necessary for me to stamp my feet and pinch myself in order to keep awake. At last, After what seemed an eternity of waiting, the first signs of approaching day were to be observed in the sky. Then a faint gray light overspread the sea, touching the little waves until they had the appearance of frosted silver. When it was quite light, I left the wheel and made my way up to the bridge. Still, no sail was in sight, and for all I could see to the contrary, ours might have been the only vessel upon the ocean. At seven o'clock, When I was beginning to feel faint for want of food, I spoke through the tube to Castellan, asking him to send one of his companions in search of a meal. He informed me that Waller would go immediately, and on hearing that I returned to my post. I had not been there many minutes before I heard a shout outside, and Waller, excited beyond measure, made his appearance at the wheelhouse door. "'A ship! A ship!' he cried, a man-of-war, if I'm not mistaken, and not more than five miles away. Before he could say anything more, I was out on the deck beside him, holding on to the rail and watching a large black man-of-war coming up hand over hand. She was certainly not more than five miles distant, and every moment brought her nearer. Hastening to the engine-room tube, I called to Castellan to stop our vessel. Then, asking Waller to take the wheel, I ran aft, to the signal locker in the companion hatch, to pick out the union jack, and to bend it on the peak halyards occupied scarcely more time than it takes to tell. Then I ran it up to half-mast as a signal of distress, and, having done so, went off to the taffrail and waited for the other vessel to come up to us. She made an imposing picture in the bright morning light as she came cleaving her way through the water and when I remembered all that her coming meant to us, I could have kissed her very decks in thankfulness. Returning to the bridge, I found Castellan, the commander-in-chief, and Waller, awaiting me there. Not a word passed between us for some moments. We stood gazing at the queen's ship in silence, waiting to see what she would do. Then a stream of signals broke out at her masthead, but as it was impossible for us to interpret them, without the necessary code we were obliged to disregard them she must have understood this for she gradually drew closer until she was less than half a mile distant when she came to a standstill shortly after we distinctly heard a boat piped away saw it leave her side and watched it come towards us a large lump was steadily rising in my throat as i saw the bluejackets at the oars and the officer seated in the stern and I felt that I was getting perilously near making a fool of myself. Churning the water under her bows into snow-white foam, the boat drew alongside. Then the handsome young officer ascended the accommodation ladder. We had, by this time, descended to the main deck to receive him. That he did not recognize us, and he might very well not have done so, was evident from the fashion in which he addressed us. "'Well, my men,' he began, glancing from one to the other of us, as if to satisfy himself as to which was the leader. "'What is the meaning of your distress signals? From what I can see of her, your boat looks right enough.' "'There is no fault to be found with the boat,' I answered, realizing in an instant the position of affairs. "'The truth is, we want to be taken off her. It is impossible to work her with only four men.' "'But what has become of the rest of the crew?' he asked, looking round as if he expected to see them somewhere about. "'They left her yesterday,' I answered, unable, despite the gravity of the situation, to refrain from mystifying him. The youth was so full of his own importance, and so inclined to be overbearing, that I could not help myself. "'And pray what rank do you four hold on board her?' he asked, evidently not a little surprised by our appearances we are passengers said the commander-in-chief and as my friend says we are extremely anxious to leave the ship and go aboard your vessel that's all very well he answered curtly but i don't think it will do the skipper won't hear of it don't you know but for the present what are your names here was the opportunity for which i had been waiting "'This gentleman is the Right Honourable Benjamin Castellan, Secretary of State for the Colonies,' I said, pointing to Castellan. "'This is the Commander-in-Chief of the British Army, and my friend on your left is Sir William Waller, who some little time ago was appointed Commander-in-Chief of the British Forces in South Africa.' "Stow that!' The officer answered angrily. "'You'd better not play the fool with me. What do you take me for?' at the same time i noticed that he looked curiously from one to the other of us as if he could not altogether trust his own judgment then he added you know very well that the four gentlemen you speak of are dead you will find my friend when you come to know us better that there is likely to be a difference of opinion on that score said the commander-in-chief quietly my own is that they are very much alive perhaps it would be as well for one of us to write a note to the captain castellan put in then turning to the lieutenant he continued i think it would be better for you to believe our story my friend what you have been told as you will admit when you have heard all we have to say is quite correct that we are the people in question i shall soon hope to convince you will you accompany us to the saloon or do you prefer to remain here He came with us to the cuddy, and when we had found paper and ink in the captain's stateroom, Castellan sat down and wrote a note to the commander of the ship. This was dispatched by the boat that had brought the lieutenant, and in less than half an hour, Captain Brakeford was ascending the steps of the accommodation ladder. In the meantime, we had made ourselves as presentable as possible, and had quite succeeded in convincing the lieutenant of the truth of our story. He was profuse in his apologies for his manner towards us, but we bade him think no more about it. He might very well have been forgiven for not having recognized us. I must leave you to imagine the captain's surprise at finding us in such a strange position. He prophesied a tremendous sensation in England, when our story should become known. You are quite certain, I suppose, that it was off a chill head, that you parted company with the yacht? he asked, when he had heard our adventures. Quite certain, I replied, but if you would care to convince yourself on that score, and will come with me to the chart-room, I will show you the chart worked out by the officer of the watch, up to noon yesterday. He did so, took certain notes, and then invited us to accompany him to the warship. The necessary officers and crew had already arrived to take possession of our own vessel, and when all was ready we bade the old tub farewell. She had been the theatre of one of the most singular adventures of the century, and, but for the fact of my having obtained possession of that gimlet, might now have been lying at the bottom of the ocean with us blocked up in her. On board the man-of-war a consultation was held, and, as a result, the captain decided to set off at once in search of the mysterious yacht, and afterwards to land us at a port whence we could easily reach London. In the meantime, gentlemen, permit me to offer you the best hospitality in my power, he said. I think, in being permitted to rescue you, I should deem myself the most fortunate man in the British Navy today. To rescue four such gentlemen is not a chance that falls to a man's lot, very often. Needless to say, we quite agreed with him. End of chapter 10